It's Thursday, May 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. America was first introduced to him in December 2001. He became known as the American Taliban, and he is set to be released from prison today. John Walker Lind is being released after serving 17 years of a 20-year sentence for providing support to the Taliban. John Woolfolk, reporter for the San Jose Mercury News, joins us for who the American Taliban is and the big question. How does a former jihadist get integrated back into society? Next, Washington has become the first state in the country to legalize human composting. Before, the only acceptable means of disposition of a human body was burial or cremation. The process involves wood chips, takes about four weeks, and yields about two wheelbarrows worth of soil. Brendan Kiley, reporter for the Seattle Times, joins us for a new alternative to burial or cremation. Finally, President Trump and Democrats continue their fight with each other, and nothing is getting done. What started off as a meeting on infrastructure ended with a press conference in the Rose Garden, where the president said he would not work with Democrats until they stop investigating him. Daniel Lippman, reporter for Politico, joins us for the big walkout by the president. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We haven't heard directly from him since the day he was sentenced when he did read a statement in which he renounced terrorism. But since he's gone into prison, the only window into his mindset has come from sympathetic articles through his parents and defense team. Joining us now is John Woolfolk, reporter at the San Jose Mercury News. We've got an interesting thing happening later. He was known as the American Taliban. He was captured during the invasion in Afghanistan in the fall of 2000. His name is John Walker Lind. There's a lot of thoughts on whether this guy should be getting released. He was serving 20, a 20 year sentence. He's being released early after serving only 17 years. What do we know about John Walker Lind? There are conflicting stories about him. What we do know is his background. He grew up in uh, originally from the Maryland area, came of age and went to high school in Marin County. And during that time, when he was about 16 years old, he decided to convert to Islam. And his parents were supportive of that. This was all in the late 90s, this is before 9-11 and all that. And when he was 17, he wanted to uh, travel to the Middle East, to the country of Yemen, to study the Koran. He did that for about nine months and came back. And after about a year back home, went back out first to Yemen and then to Pakistan and ended up in Afghanistan. And then his parents lost touch with him for a few months. And then there's 9-11 and suddenly, you know, where is he? Where is he? And then, you know, the war starting in October of that year, Operation Enduring Freedom, and they're wondering where he is. And the next thing they hear, they're getting a call from a reporter and from CNN that had been tipped that there was an American who was captured with him. It was about 80-odd Taliban fighters who had staged an unsuccessful escape or riot at a prison camp. And it was among them. And they interviewed him and everything. And so he suddenly he splashed on a screens of everybody's television across the country as the American Taliban. That's uh, when we first were introduced to him in December 2001. And, December and f- 2001. And for yeah. anybody that remembers those pictures, I mean, he was all dirty, his hair, you know, he had the beard, everything. There was all sorts of pictures. There was pictures of him like naked, strapped to a, a gurney with tape and things like that. And this was where all the murky stuff happens. He was captured right after 9-11. Do we know if he had anything to do with any of that planning? Or, or I mean, he wasn't involved in any of the planes or anything, but 
what was he involved in while he was there with the Taliban? You're right. That's where it gets murky because he originally was charged. Right? He was indicted on 10 counts, including planning to kill Americans and all kinds of terrorism-related charges. And then less than a year after we first heard of him, suddenly the, the government cuts a plea deal. He'll plead out to two counts, relatively modest ones. One was violating a uh, Clinton-era executive order against dealing or supporting the Taliban, and the other was carrying explosives in the course of doing that, in this case, a rifle and grenade. But he never went to trial, so no one was ever able to probe his involvement in either 9-11 or even in the prison uprising, which resulted in the first American combat casualty, Johnny Mike Spann. Yeah. CAA officer who it turned out had interviewed him just moments before. His family in particular is not happy at all that uh, no. Lind is going to be released. Yeah, No, they are not. And since he's gone away and into a federal prison, he's moved around to a few and is finishing his time at prison in Indiana. But since then, he's not communicated at all publicly. I think for much of the time he was in there, I understand that he was under some sort of order from the prison bureau that he could not communicate externally. I'd read some articles that said he had been told that he couldn't communicate. When we reached out to him and his family and last couple of weeks trying to see if they would speak to us. They told us, the Bureau of Prisons told us that he was not forbidden to talk, talk to us, but that he was declining interviews. Wow. And his, well, his family and his attorneys also would not comment. So we haven't heard directly from him since the day he was sentenced when he did read a statement in which he renounced terrorism. But since he's gone into prison, the only window into his mindset has come either from sympathetic articles through his parents and defense team revealing sort of his thoughts to them or comments to them generally either at the time of his sentencing. And then there have been these two leaked reports yeah, that's that's the, interesting. His parents, just for his parents' part, they said that he wanted to help the Taliban fight injustice by their Afghan enemies, not necessarily kill fellow Americans. And as you mentioned, there was these two leaked reports. And that's the big mm -hmm. question. Is he still a threat? And in these two reports, there was things that saying that he still said stuff that he might be supporting the Islamic State. And so it's unclear as to where his mindset is. And there's lawmakers that are very concerned about this, saying, you know, what are we doing to reform these former jihadists? How do we get them reintegrated back into mm -hmm. society? That's the big question right now. Unless he says something after his release, and we, we don't know where he will be going. The prison bureau won't discuss it without his permission. He apparently hasn't granted it. So we don't know where we will, he will end up. At one point, he was considering, or his father was encouraging him to consider relocating to Ireland. And that apparently fell through after a fallout with his lawyer over his parent refusal to renounce all forms of atrocities or something. That's via these leaked documents that we yeah. Not been able to get any further information on them other than what's printed. So we don't know. He's obviously changed so much over the years. I'm sure a lot of people don't even know what he looks like or, or would recognize him again. He's 38 now. Mm -hmm. Under all the conditions of his release, he's going to be under three years of supervision. He can't have mm -hmm. online communications in an, any language other than English. Obviously, he can't communicate with known extremists or possess or view terrorist material. I mean, he's going to be under a lot of scrutiny. How do you reintegrate this guy into society? And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on him. Yes, at least for three years. John Wolfolk, mm -hmm. reporter for the San Jose Mercury News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
But the truth is that nature is really, really good at death. We've all seen it. When organic material dies in nature, microbes and bacteria break it down into nutrient-rich soil, completing the life cycle. In nature, death creates life. Joining us now is Brendan Kiley, reporter at the Seattle Times. Earlier this week, Governor Jay Inslee signed a new bill making Washington the first state in the U.S. to legalize human composting. It's called natural organic reduction or alkaline hydrolysis, sometimes called liquid cremation. And this is now a new acceptable means of disposing of the human body. Up until now, you can only do a burial or cremation. So tell us a little bit about the bill and what it does. The first point is that alkaline hydrolysis and natural organic reduction are two separate processes. Alkaline hydrolysis, they've been trying to legalize that for the past few years in Washington state. And it's legal in some other states as well. But this year it got tacked on or what got added was natural organic reduction or colloquially known as human composting. And so this process, I think the easiest way to think about it is like a urban crematorium, except using the slower composting decomposition process instead of the faster flame process. We do have green cemeteries in Washington state where people can be buried without embalming, without expensive caskets and so on. But this being one site where bodies would go in and the human remains would come out is totally new, the idea in the United States. Yeah. Specifically, how does this work? I've just seen wood chips, straw, and other materials. So what do they do to naturally decompose the body that way? The process dates back a little bit, a few years back, to something called livestock mortality composting, which is something farmers and ranchers began to experiment with and researchers as well, and found as an efficient and environmentally friendly means of decomposition of large animals, and found that one could, with the proper mix of of uh, starter elements, the right aeration, managing it for the right temperature could reduce 1,500 pound steer into totally clean, usable, nutritionally rich soil in about a few months. They ran some tests, a research program at Washington State University with human remains, people who were terminally ill and supported the project and wanted to donate their remains to the research and found that uh, using a similar process, human bodies could become that kind of clean, rich soil in about four weeks. Wow. Um, so the quick. process of yeah, it is pretty quick, and that's bones and all. It requires, again, the right starter elements, uh, the right aeration to keep the microbes happy. And it's, relatively speaking, uh, less odorous than people would think. If the microbes are really happy and working really efficiently, they do their work quickly, and they don't produce a lot of that off-gas odor that we associate with something rotting. Because that was one of my questions. What about the bones? Obviously, <laughs> they're, they're tough to break down. So I didn't know that even in that short of time, you know, four weeks, it's pretty quick. The bones yeah, go with it, too. Quick. Yeah, and again, it's a little different than just a green burial where you dig a hole and you lay someone in and just a, a cloth shroud or something, you know, that process of decomposition takes longer because the conditions are different. But if you have the right temperature, the right moisture, the right starter elements, the process moves pretty fast. Now, traditional ways of disposing of the bodies, cremation usually burns two full SUV tanks worth of gas. They say that it emits 250,000 tons of carbon into the atmosphere each year. Traditional barriers, the body is pumped full of embalming fluid. 
obviously mm-hmm. the caskets, all of these measures slowly decompose the body and it produces a lot of methane gas, things like that. The traditional ways environmentally are not necessarily the best. Was this bill introduced specifically to address some of those issues? It was. And that was one of the, the founder Katrina Spade's main visions. I mean, she grew up in a farm in New Hampshire. Her father's pirate physician. Her mother was a physician's assistant, an environmental activist. So familiarity with life, death, composting, new growth of plants and animals, and that was all part of her childhood coming up. And when she was studying architecture, she was thinking about death modalities, what we use to deal with human remains, and wondered if something more farm-like might be good, both environmentally and to people's taste. If people don't want to spend a lot of money on varnished caskets and lined with expensive cloths and the embalming process and all that kind of thing. So this is Katrina's vision and, and the state senators and the governor agreed. This is simpler, less expensive, less complicated, more natural, more environmentally friendly option for people's remains after they pass away. Katrina Spade, so she's the developer of the Urban Death Project. Is she the one behind this Recompose company who's going to be building kind of these new burial plots for this? That's right. Katrina Spade started a nonprofit called the Urban Death Project, I think around 2014, and began the process of talking to scientists and attorneys and uh, death care experts from around the country, a lot lot on the West Coast, and formed a board, and they moved into a, a for-profit model, a small business model to have recompose. And now that the legislation has passed and the governor has signed it, the next step is for them to develop the rules uh, necessary with the Department of Licensing, all that kind of stuff, and find a site and start building. You know, when people get cremated, oftentimes they spread the ashes, maybe mm-hmm. in their loved one's favorite place. Loved ones are allowed to keep this soil that is made. You know, a body would create about two wheelbarrows full of soil and you can take it to a home garden wherever you want to put it. You know, to plant a tree, plant vegetables. So that's kind of a cool notion to breathe life out of somebody's passing as well. Oh, that's absolutely the case. And, and part of the attraction behind it, I mean, I spoke to one older gentleman who's a big supporter of this from Eastern Washington, has been a career nurse all his life, working in intensive cardiac care units. His vision is to have a memorial treat, you know, something that you could hang a swing on and maybe grandkids or great grandkids down the line could swing on and have his body come nourishment for that tree itself. It would be a living testament to him as opposed to, to a headstone in a cemetery. Now, the next step is, I guess, to see if other states will propose similar bills and, and see how this takes off across the country. I mean, it sounds like there's some interest bubbling up, maybe a little bit in Massachusetts, a little bit in Michigan. Um, Joshua Slocum of the Funeral Consumers Alliance out in New England certainly knows about this and is following this. People are quite interested in this as a relatively simple, viable alternative to what we've done in the past. Brendan Kylie, reporter at the Seattle Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you. I told Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, I want to do infrastructure. I want to do it more than you want to do it. I'd be really good at that. That's what I do. But you know what? You can't do it under these circumstances. So get these phony investigations over with. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. We always wish we could be talking about something much more important and substantive, but sometimes it is fun just to talk about all the fighting that's happening. We know 
that the president in the White House is at war with Democrats in the House. And the president and Democrats were scheduled to have a meeting to talk about infrastructure. One of the things that everybody's been talking about as the only hope of getting something done because it has a lot of bipartisan support. But the president walked out of the meeting after only, I don't know, three to five minutes, they say it. And he said that he would no longer be working with Democrats unless they drop all the investigations into him and his administration. So set the stage for us, Daniel. What happened? Democrats should have known that they were walking into the setup, given that no Republicans were invited. And they had prepared a podium in, I believe it was the Rose Garden, where it said no collusion, no obstruction. And it was ready for Trump to come out there and say that Democrats should choose between investigations and legislation. They can't do both. And it was quite a remarkable scene where he didn't even shake their hand when he went into the meeting. And then Kellyanne Conway and Nancy Pelosi fought at the end of the meeting after Trump stormed out. Trump didn't even give Democrats a chance to talk. So this is something that, you know, it's not a good day for Washington, D.C. and the country when the Speaker of the House has to say, well, I'm praying for the United States of America and I'm praying for the president. Earlier in the day, Nancy Pelosi had a meeting with Democrats. Impeachment talk has been the buzz going around. Speaking to reporters after, she said that she does believe the president is gauged in a cover-up. We believe that no one is above the law, including the president of the United States, and we believe that the president of the United States is engaged in a cover-up. Reports have said that the president was pissed about that, and that's probably what led him to orchestrate this short-lived meeting that happened. And the meeting had been planned for weeks, apparently, but he was so mad about what happened and the, you know, being accused of a cover-up. That was one of the first things that he said, I don't do cover-ups. I'm the most transparent president probably in the history of this country. I don't do cover-ups. Yeah, and Democrats raise the point that they'll have to see from Robert Mueller if he believes that to be the case, given that there are these credible allegations of obstruction of justice, even though none of them were actually charged. And Democrats will also note to reporters and all of us in the media that there was investigations going on three weeks ago when they had a positive meeting about policy issues with the president, and he didn't really mind then. And so Democrats are saying, why now? Are you just because of that phrase that Pelosi said about uh, she believes there was a cover-up. This is one of those situations where really nobody looks good walking away from this. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, they're saying they're doing the work that Congress needs to be doing, looking into the president, but, you know, saying I'm praying for him sounds a little condescending sometimes. The president on his part going into the meeting, setting them up that way, saying, I'm not going to work with you guys, and then rushing right out to a pre-planned press conference that was set up right there. You know, nobody looks good in these situations. And for the public, it really frustrates people because they want stuff to be getting done. But these people that are working, supposed to be working together, just can't get it done. This is a critical issue that every American is affected by infrastructure. And so this is something that's been ignored by both parties for years. Obama tried to take a piece of it with the stimulus, but that wasn't true infrastructure. There was a lot of projects, but It wasn't a a package solely devoted to infrastructure. There's a lot of different components of that. And it holds back the economy. If it costs more money to go on highways and if trains are slow or bridges don't work or they can't carry the weight of trucks carrying goods across the country, that has real world GDP implications and it ultimately affects the number of jobs that we have. And so... Obviously, Americans are pissed off when they go to an airport and it's clogged and uh, it seems like a no-brainer, especially with China spending so much money on infrastructure. But Democrats aren't eager to give 
Trump a win. And Republicans, they have their own issues in terms of funding. They don't want to spend a ton of, mo- of public money, but there's only so much that public-private partnerships can actually do. I'm sure what happened between the president and Democrats is really just going to ramp up the fighting. So we'll keep monitoring the situation. Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.